Hello, and welcome back to another episode of A Pinch of Prevention. Prachi and I are super excited to be here with you today, but before we jump into this episode, we wanted to open with a quick trigger warning. This episode will include mentions of sexual assault and rape. In addition, this podcast is in partnership with the Prevention Youth Council, which functions in partnership with Albion Fellows Bacon Center, and our mission is to uplift the voices of teens by providing them with opportunities to advocate for their communities and themselves. So today we are here with Jessica Cannon. She is a sexual assault nurse examiner at Deaconess. Jessica, we are so excited to be speaking with you today. Thank you. Um, so could you go ahead and tell us a little bit about what you do? Yes. So I have, I'm, first of all, I'm a registered nurse and I have worked at Deaconess for almost 14 years. Um, during my time, I've always been in the emergency department and while working there, I found out that we were getting a lot of victims of violence, um, in particular sexual assault. And we didn't really have a program set up at that point to care for them. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. So it's not just, you know, reporting to law enforcement. Um, we want to talk to them in a trauma-informed way. We try to not re-victimize people. And we want to collect any potential evidence. So anyway, there weren't any nurses trained in that. So I went to my boss and asked if I could be sent to a special training. So in 2010, myself and another nurse who were interested went to Louisville, Kentucky for our training. It was a week-long class because uh, at that time, Indiana really didn't have any trainings to offer. Mm -hmm. So we did have to travel out of state. When I got back from that, I was certified in adults and adolescents. But then I also realized that there were a lot of pediatric patients that were being missed um, that didn't fall into that and how we care for them. So then I went back to my boss again in 2012 and asked <laughs> if I could uh, be trained as a pediatric sexual assault nurse. So I went to Dallas, Texas for that training because uh, there were even less offerings of pediatric courses locally. So since 2012, I have been trained in adults, adolescents, and pediatrics, and um, we serve probably somewhere between 100 and 150 victims a year. Um, yeah, so that's just kind of what I do. That is so awesome. So could you tell us a little bit about what you do on a more day-to-day -day basis whenever you go to your job? Yeah, so in my role as a sexual assault nurse examiner, we actually take calls. So we are available anytime a victim arrives, day or night, Monday through Friday, wow. weekends, <laughs> awesome. holidays, anytime. Because as we know, sexual assaults don't all happen during the daytime mm -hmm. office hours, right? So... If a victim, if this happens to them at night, they're more than welcome to come to the hospital at any point in time because, honestly, the sooner the better um, for multiple reasons. Not only to make sure that they're okay, that's our, always our number one priority in healthcare, is to make sure they're physically okay, emotionally okay. Um, we, we always talk about suicidal ideation because there's a lot of feelings that come up with this. Um, and I always remind, especially teens, um, they're sometimes hesitant to come to the hospital because they've been engaging in something maybe illegal, such as underage drinking, mm. or maybe they were doing some sort of drug when this happened. Um, but I want to let them know that they're immune from any backlash to that. And most of the times, I don't want to speak for law enforcement, but in my experience, they typically can overlook that type of stuff if there's been a crime involved, such as a sexual assault. So I just say that because I don't want that to be the reason that someone would choose not to report just because they were maybe voluntarily drinking or something. Um, that's not going to be an issue for us, and it's usually not an issue for law enforcement either. 
Um, but anyway, on a day-to-day, -day, they could arrive at any point in time. If one of us are there, so there's several of us that are trained now. Our program has really, really evolved. So there's probably like eight of us now, and we serve both Midtown and Gateway Hospital. Um, and I don't want to speak just for Deaconess. I know St. Vincent has a really good program, too. So they've got sexual assault nurses as well. Mm -hmm. um, at least here locally, those are your options. Um, but one of us, if we were working in the department, would take over care. And then if one of us was not there, they would call us in. And so you would visit with a nurse on staff there and then also the physician. Um, they would medically clear you. And then uh, once we arrived, we have a whole host of questions to talk about. Um, we will call Albion for an advocate if needed so they can kind of be that unbiased support person for the person there. Uh, on top of that, we will do a full head-to-toe exam, just making sure that they are physically okay. Um, we're offering comfort. We're offering um, photography if that is something that the patient wants. A lot of times, um, victims will have some injuries on their bodies that I will say a photo is worth a thousand words. So mm -hmm. if they're okay with us taking photographs, we can do that. And then we'll dive into doing a sexual assault kit, and I can explain that more, too, if you guys yes, want. Yes, absolutely. So this, this will be lengthy because I'm going to explain all the steps. So first of all, it's a very invasive procedure, and so anybody that goes through this, um, I certainly feel for them. Um, it comes up sometimes, you know, why would someone false report, or why would somebody want to go through this? We have a lot of, for whatever reason, doubt in victims. Mm -hmm. We don't believe them when they tell us, Mm -hmm. Does something happen to them? And my answer to that is, number one, it's not my job to judge. If someone tells me this is what happened to them, I'm going to believe them. It's no different from any ER patient that comes in and says, my chest hurts, my belly hurts. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to not believe you. I just, it is what it is. Yeah. So number one is to, you know, believe them. Um, but also we, you know, are going to do the kit if they fall within that acute stage, which we would call like somewhere between 120 hours. Um, because that is the stage where we can actually collect evidence um, or potential evidence, I should say. So we never know exactly if we're collecting things that might be probative or not, but based on the history that they give us is how we're going to collect the evidence. So with that, um, if you guys have ever watched Forensic Files or anything mm -hmm. like that, if you're into <laughs> any kind of criminal mind stuff, yeah you would know that it's called a kit. And so a lot of people are kind of familiar with it, but they're not really certain um, what all is entailed. But like I mentioned, it is very invasive. So uh, most people that go through this, you know, do it reluctantly. They know it needs to be done, but it's certainly not enjoyable. <laughs> so, yeah. So you mentioned uh, the invasive nature mm -hmm. of the procedure. What type of steps do you guys take to make sure that that um, that the trauma that could result from that is minimized as much as it can be? Yeah, that's a great question. So obviously what's just happened to them was extremely invasive and all of their control was taken away. So that's number one for us is to make sure that they feel like they're in control because they are. This kit is not life-saving. I always tell people that. It is all up to you what you want done and what you don't want done. I'm not going to do anything to your body that you're not okay with. So just making sure constantly. It's not just a, you know, you consent to everything in the kit. Each step I'm checking in. Is this okay? Oh, so there's multiple it's, levels Oh, yeah, there's of multiple consent. steps. And I, I always ask for each step. Are you, Is this yeah. okay? Is this okay? 
And then making sure I explain things. I don't just jump in and start touching mm-hmm. them. And mm-hmm. um, because we do a pelvic exam where we do have to look down there. And so again, making sure that's okay. And if that is not okay with them, that's okay. We can still do other parts of the kit. Um, it's not an all or nothing. So but anyway, um, back to what we do, it's going to include, um, you do have to get undressed. Uh, so we try to provide as much you know, privacy as possible, but we do need to look over your entire body. Um, and that's when we do our photographs and document any injuries. Then we're going to collect what we call oral swabs. So if anyone was assaulted orally or anything like that, that's where we would collect that evidence from. Um, we would also swab any parts of the body. So maybe they mention um, that there might be some DNA somewhere potentially on their body. We would uh, swab any area for that. We are also doing head hair combings. We do pubic hair combings. Uh, we also do, like I mentioned, a pelvic exam. So we're also taking swabs um, from genitalia. And so we also, it's not just females. I know everybody thinks it's only females that mm-hmm. get sexually assaulted. And that's not true. Um, we do see males. So they go through the same process, obviously just a little different when we get to that part. Um, but same things with them. I'm always checking in because you never know um, how any part of it's going to make it make them feel, especially with men. They're always told to be masculine and, mm-hmm. you know, this shouldn't be a big deal for you. Um, but that's not true. You know, everybody feels differently about it. So, Do you see a difference between the male patients and the female patients that come in, like how they approach the subject or about the same. Yeah, I would say, um, and I think research out there says that one in six, correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys know, one in six males is abused at some point in their life, but we know not nearly any of them come in to be seen. Mm -hmm. Many of them never seek treatment and women don't either, but men definitely in a much higher rate do not seek treatment. So that's number one. We don't see nearly as many men as we do women. And I think it's partly because of that is that they're too afraid to come forward Um, They feel embarrassed. They feel very ashamed. Um, Mm -hmm. Most of the times they are assaulted by another man. Um, It is usually not a female perpetrator, though we can have female perpetrators, uh, but typically it's a male. And so that brings up a lot of questions for them, too, of are they going to think I'm gay if uh, this happens to me? And whether they are or not, um, that doesn't matter. But that brings up a lot of, you know, those feelings for them. So... When a man comes in, um, it's it's interesting because most women, they prefer a female to examine them. Yeah. And so you would think for a male that they'd be more comfortable with a male. But in my experience, they're much more comfortable with a female examining mm. them. That's and I don't know if it's because of that, you know, stereotype of, you know, I can't look like this in front of another man. Yeah. Um, I'm embarrassed, you know, and I think they are more free to open up to a female. So that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um... After the rape kit is done, how mm-hmm. does that go to law enforcement? Do the nurses communicate with law enforcement? Do the victims have to speak with them? Yeah, so at the hospital, we help facilitate all of that. So either the victim has already called law enforcement and then comes to us. Our law enforcement um, detectives and patrol officers know that victims have a small window of when they can go to the hospital and have any potential evidence collected. Uh, So they usually will direct them to go to us first, but they may have encountered law enforcement first. And so they've helped facilitate to get to us. But otherwise, what typically happens is they come to the hospital first. And then once we're done with the kit, we'll call whichever jurisdiction the crime happened in. So people sometimes get confused about that. They assume, well, Deaconess is in Evansville and Gateways in Newburgh. So those are the two law enforcement offices I have to deal with. 
And that's not true. We get people from Kentucky. We get people from Illinois. We get people county, you know, mm-hmm. state. It's just, it's whatever um, jurisdiction that the crime occurred in. So once I figure that out, that is the law enforcement agency that I call. I notify them that they have a sexual assault kit to pick up because we do not store evidence at our hospital. Some hospitals in Indianapolis do actually store their kits, but that's nothing that we do down here. So I would reach out to them. They would come to the hospital. We would do what we call a chain of custody. And this is how uh, evidence is handled in court. This is how we know that what I collected was not tampered with, basically. And there is going to be a written log of who handled it first and then who did I hand it off to. And then when law enforcement comes, they're going to sign off and say, at this exact time, I took possession. And then when they give it to the crime lab, there'll be another written note of, Mm -hmm. okay, then I handed it to this person. And that just helps in court to make sure that everything is held up. Um, because, you know, a defense attorney, easy thing to poke at is that chain of custody and say, yeah. well, how do you know someone didn't just slide someone else's DNA in there? So yeah. that's how it gets to them. And then they take it and they will put it into evidence storage. Um, and then from there, it kind of is up to the prosecutor. It's up to the detectives, prosecutors of how that kit gets handled. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously a really long process to get kits moved and get all the DNA evidence Mm -hmm. and everything through all the different steps. So in your opinion is, or I guess also scientifically speaking, is there a time frame that's best for victims to come in? Or is there like a time limit? Like say someone was assaulted three weeks ago. Is it too late for them to still go in and see you guys? Yeah. So that's another great question. Uh, It's never too late to come to the hospital for medical treatment. Um, If a child decides 10 years later that they are finally going to come forward and they want to make sure that their body's okay, they are always more than welcome to come to the hospital. They can go to their, you know, primary care physicians too. Um, And same thing for teenagers, adults. Um, If it's been past that, we usually say 96 to 120 hours. So four to five days is about your window or the longest we can wait before we can collect potential evidence. So past that five-day window we wouldn't really be offering the kit. So because statistics show that the probability of getting anything at that point is relatively low to non-existent, especially other factors depend on it too. So have they bathed, you know, have you brushed your teeth? Have you had a bowel movement, urinated? All of those things wipe away evidence, unfortunately. So after that five-day period, um, I hate to use the word pointless, but as far as the kit goes, it sometimes becomes that. But... Like you said, um, they can still always come to the hospital. They can always receive medical treatment. We will always do an exam and make sure everything looks okay. Uh, we can offer, you know, STD testing, um, talk about pregnancy prophylaxis, things mm-hmm. like that as well. So there is that still whole medical piece. And I feel like anybody sexually sexually assaulted at some point needs to come um, to receive health care, whether mm-hmm. that be from a hospital or their primary care doctor, or pediatrician, or OBGYN. It really doesn't matter, but I feel like everybody at some point needs to be told that they're okay. Yeah. So, so you mentioned earlier that children and adults both come into the hospital. Mm-hmm. What's the difference of treatment of a child, teenager, and adult? Yeah, that's good, too. You guys have the best questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... As far as children go, and this is something that I have to ease parents' fears about, they think in their mind, okay, my five-year-old, this happened to them, I'm going to take them to the hospital, and they're going to hold them down and, you know, insert a speculum into them. 
Um, and that's absolutely not true. We never want to do anything to hurt a child. And honestly, if they have not been through puberty yet, so we base that on whether they've started their period or not, if they haven't, we are not doing anything invasive at all. So there will, oh, not, all, there will not be a speculum exam. Um, there will be swabs taken, but only of the outside and then other areas of their body because that's really painful um, to do anything like that when they're that young. Uh, now, little boys, it's going to be different. They can still be treated um, like we would swab an adult male because mm-hmm. um, their genitals are not as sensitive as the females um, at that age. So I always start with that with parents. I'm like, okay, everybody can relax. Um, we're not here to hurt your child. And we would definitely never, ever hold a child down or an adult for that matter. If you come to me and, you know, this happened to you and you're like, nope, you're not going to examine me. You're not going to look. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to then say, well, I'll get a, other people to help me and we'll hold you down. And I was, you know, we have parents ask that or we have sometimes yeah. officers ask that. And I'm like, yeah. if they were sexually assaulted, what do you think this is going to feel like to them? Yeah. This is legitimately like raping them again. Mm-hmm. So we would never, ever do that. With kids, people are always like, well, they can't consent because of their age. You're right. However, I can get what we call assent. And that just means I need you to be agreeable. I need you to be okay with me looking at your body and touching you. Mm-hmm. And if a child's not okay with it, I don't press, I'm not going to press the issue. Um, but most of them, once you get to talking to them, you explain your role. Um, and you talk about how this is, you know, you're like at the doctor's office. I need to look at your body. You know, your parents right here with you. Uh, most of them are okay with it. But yeah, it's, that's the big difference is that we're not getting too invasive. And then again, with kids, we don't medicate them like we do adults. So if an adult or a teenager arrives and um, they've been sexually assaulted, we offer what we call STD prophylaxis. So that includes a lot of antibiotics. Um, We'll offer like plan B um, to prevent pregnancy if that's something that they want. So we would give that to an adolescent or adult, but we wouldn't offer that to a child, at least the STD treatment, just because Mm -hmm. it's a lot of medicines. Mm -hmm. So we just test them and wait to see if they're positive, if that makes sense. So... Kind of while we're on the topic of parental consent, I feel like, and Prachi, you can maybe back me up or say I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of teens and people our age would be hesitant to go into the doctor because they don't want to talk to their parents about these uncomfortable subjects like STD testing and potential pregnancy. Do teen patients have to have parental consent or is that assent enough for them as well? So in Indiana, typically, if you're 16 or older, you can seek um, reproductive health uh, treatment without a parental consent. Um, And so a lot of people think that that falls, this sexual assault exam falls into that. And unfortunately, it doesn't. Um, Mm -hmm. It falls under a crime against a minor. And therefore, yes, we can still give you treatment, but we do have to have consent of some form. Now, what happens a lot of times, though, um, especially with the little kids, it sometimes the offender is a parent. And that's really sad to say, but that's can be what it is or some sort of relative grandparent, something like that. And so we want to be mindful of who we're getting the consent from. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if a parent's very resistant to giving that consent, sometimes raises a red flag. Uh, But yeah, they can't unfortunately come in and just say, I was assaulted and I want this done and I don't want you to tell my parents. Yeah. Uh, Because as a, well, anybody really, but mostly or specifically healthcare workers, we are mandatory reporters. So anybody under 18, if there's a crime involved, we have to notify law enforcement. And this is something I didn't talk about with adults. So if you're 18 or older, 
you have the option of whether you want to report to law enforcement or not. So you can come to the hospital, you can have the kit, you can have everything done just like you normally would. Uh, the only difference is I'm not going to call law enforcement for you. You don't have to talk to them. Uh, you don't have to make a report and that's okay. And we encourage people to do that if they're on the fence. So sometimes people are like, well, I don't really know if I want to report this, but I know I need to go to the hospital and have mm -hmm. this done. So there's no harm in having it done. And then if you don't decide to move forward with it, that's okay. But it's even worse if you do decide to move forward and you never had the kit done. Because right. yeah. then we, we're lost at that point. So I always tell people, if you're on the fence, come and have it done. You can always decide about the reporting later. Um, I know just from talking to some of the law enforcement officers, they do keep the kits for quite some time. We used to tell people only a year. Uh, it really depends on the jurisdiction, but at least a year you have okay. to decide, you know, do I want to move forward with this or not? So, but yeah, under 18, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. and I, I'm just honest with them. If I have a teenager come in and they, this has happened to them and they tell me, I don't, I don't want to tell my parents. I just, before we get started, I'm like, I can't like I'm mandatory reporter and I have to, you have to do this. So what do you say to those kids who don't want to come in because they don't want to talk to their parents about it? Um, so I don't really encounter them at that point typically. So well, I guess like, what would you say to people maybe? Um, I would say, is there other legal guardian that could step in for them? Um, and also, you know, they think their parent has to be in there for the whole exam. And that's not true. Most teenagers, you know, are very aware of their bodies. They don't even want to get undressed in front of their moms anymore. So if a parent is with them or they need to be there and they don't want them to be, I always let them know, like, you you can tell them as much or as little as you want. It's your story, um, and that's for you to decide. And if you want them out of the room during the exam, that's completely fine. Uh, I wouldn't make a parent stay in there with them uh, during the exam, but I would say I do need their consent to do this. So, so how many cases do you get in about a month? Um, so it's like 100 to 150 a year, so do man. <laughs> uh, it just depends. So 20 to 30-ish, um, maybe a month. Definitely we're busier in the summer. Oh, Whatever really? reason. People are out and about in the summers. Um, people drink more in the summertime. Okay. Um, unfortunately, alcohol tends to go hand in hand with sexual assaults. We see it a lot. Um, and that's, again, no fault. And I know people always feel like, well, it's my fault this happened. I was drinking, mm -hmm. I shouldn't have been drinking, and I got sexually assaulted. So I'm reassuring people all the time, just because you were drinking didn't mean you should get raped. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Just because you smoked marijuana doesn't give someone the right to do this to your body. Mm -hmm. So we try to put that aside so that they can feel better and then move on and say, it's, it's okay. Um, you know, doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. What are some things that aren't explicitly outlined in your training that you've learned through experiences of your job? Oh, that people are very brave. I have heard all kinds of stories from different victims. Um, kiddos are resilient, you know, um, especially like when testifying. People have a hard time understanding why someone wouldn't have injuries. So I spend a lot of my time explaining that, especially with children. They just... No, children and adults typically don't have injuries post-assault. And people think, jurors think this, well, if someone was raped, they should be all, yeah. you know, beat up and bleeding and all of that. And that's not true. Uh, and I always have to explain, you know, if they're an adult, you know, the vagina was meant to birth a child. It is meant to stretch. And so mm -hmm. there are reasons physiologically that there may not be injuries. And not to mention, if people uh, 
come to us later, so not within those first 24 hours, the chance of us seeing an injury that might have been there are extremely low because uh, the vaginal tissue heals very quickly. I always explain it. It's like biting the inside of your cheek. Mm-hmm. You feel it initially, but usually by the next day, it's pretty much healed up and it's yeah. gone. Um, vaginal tissue is a lot like that. So I say even if there was an injury, I may have not seen it because they didn't come to me until day three or four. So, yeah, definitely learned that most people don't have injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, kiddos are resilient. Um, and they've been through so much and are still okay on the other side. You know, it just amazes me. Yeah. Have you ever testified? Sorry. No, you're fine. Have you ever testified before? I have. uh, Not a lot. um, Maybe four or five times. Mm -hmm. A couple were on child abuse cases, sexual assault, molestation. um, And then one or two adults I've testified on. And what that, do you normally say whenever you testify? <laughs> well, so when we call, when we get called to testify, we're either being called as a fact witness or an expert witness. Um, and typically working at the hospital, it's going to be a fact witness if I was the one doing the exam. So in that case, I'm just, just like I'm telling you guys, these are the steps of the kit. The last, do you remember seeing Joe Schmo on this day? Yes. Did you mm-hmm. treat this person? Yes. And then you just go into everything that you, um, they say, saw, smell, heard, all of that stuff. It's just the objective facts. If I'm called as an expert, then I can give my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like what we're doing here today, too. Just like explaining and saying, in my experience, this is what I would imagine to see or something like that. So I have testified a few times, but I always tell people it's amazing how many of these don't ever go to court. Yeah. Well, I have seen probably 100 victims, and you hear me say I've only testified five times. So all of those other people um, either didn't decide to move forward with it or there wasn't enough to go on to take it to trial or somebody's taken a plea bargain. So honestly, we say a plea is a win (laughs) Uh, because sometimes these cases are so hard, so hard to win because unfortunately a lot of times it's a he said, she said. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's somebody they know. It's an acquaintance, a dating relationship, a spouse even. And so of course the one's going to say, yeah, it was consensual. The other one's going to say, no, it was a sexual assault. It's so hard to prove. Because even if the evidence is there, the DNA, we would expect it, right? If you're in a consensual yeah. relationship. So that those are tough. Really tough. What do you think about, like, some people might argue that it's not worth it to try to even prosecute any of these cases. Because, like you said, they're just so hard to win. Yeah. Do you agree with that? Or do you think the opposite? I do, do, and I get that, and I I can't even imagine being a victim in this criminal justice system, Um, just hearing horror stories from, you know, you might start with one prosecutor, and then you get moved to another, and then another, and then you have to tell this story over and over and over again, and not to mention that this may happen today, but you may never even get to court for three, four, five years, and especially for teenagers, you might be off to college at that point. It takes a long time to emotionally get over this and to be able to get into therapy and talk to people. And so sometimes people are over it. They're done talking about it. They've moved on. Now we ask them to come back and open this back up. And it really, they say that's another victimization, um, the whole criminal justice system. And then not to mention you do all that and then you get a not guilty verdict. And so you're like, wow, I just, they feel like they wasted their time. They feel like a victim all over again. So yeah, it's really crummy, the whole system. So so to kind of shift gears a little bit, you mentioned earlier how there's a lot of stigma, obviously, surrounding everything, sexual assault, 
rape, talking about STD testing and everything. How has the stigma around these topics manifested its way into your job? Maybe in multiple realms, like with patients and also like in your training or experiences and having to talk to people about your job. Yeah, and just like we talked about with the male survivors, you know, they that stigma of this doesn't happen to men. This is a female victim only thing. And so explaining that to them um, and just people not coming forward in general, like I talked mm-hmm. about, you know, I know they're out there. I'm, I'll never see them probably, yeah. um, but I know they exist. Um, if you've ever watched The Hunting Ground, it's about campus sexual mm-hmm. assault. Amazing. Um, but it's a documentary about... to watch list. <laughs> yes. Add that to your list, it's, especially before you go to college. Yeah. Um, it's, it's an eye-opener. I mean, it happens a lot on college campuses. And it talks about how, you know, that stigma of, well, what were you doing wrong to do that? You know, you went to a frat party. Why were you there? I mean, again, back to just because you go to a frat party doesn't mean you deserve to be sexually assaulted. But that's the stigma is, oh, she must have been wearing something that brought Mm -hmm. this on. And so getting out of people's heads that information, you know, like they get that stuck in their minds and then trying to explain to them, like, get that out of your head. You weren't doing anything wrong. Um just that kind of stuff, those stigmas that everyone thinks about. What do you think has to be done to start altering those stigmas? Oh, just education in general, doing podcasts like this, making people aware. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. Yeah, just, I mean, really, people don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Um, and hearing it from professionals in the business, um, you know, talking to law enforcement, prosecutors, nurses who see it. Um, and just letting people know, I mean, this is real, this exists and it is not stranger danger. Mm-hmm. It's not the stranger jumping out of the bush. That's going to sexually assault you. Yeah, it's your, it's your friend, it's your acquaintance, it's your relative. Um, and so that's another thing people are super embarrassed about and that stigma of, well, I was abused by my father. Um, what does that mean? Um, the whole virginity issue too. um, yeah. people that their first sexual encounter was a rape. Uh, they have a lot of questions about, am I still a virgin, you know? And so we always talk about virginity is something you give away. It's not something that can be taken from you. So yeah. letting people hear that really helps too. Um, yeah. But yeah, what you guys are doing is fantastic. <laughs> well, educating people. Because um, everybody's a potential juror out there too. So yeah. any information people can hear and know, um, it just helps the cause. So yeah. You mentioned earlier that um, you pushed for the SANE program to come to Deaconess and Evansville. Mm-hmm. Is this an issue across the United States? Do you think that there needs to be more programs everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. So there is definitely a shortage of SANE nurses. There's a shortage of nurses in general right now, um, but definitely SANE nurses. It is an intense um, training, and you have to have the heart for it. Yeah. So not everybody can sit and listen to people's their worst day of their life. Do you think that there needs to be that, like, maybe before, like, you decide to become a sane nurse, like, that affirmation that you are emotionally ready for this? Yes, definitely. You have to know what you're getting yourself into. And if you know you're the type of person that's like, I, you know, I feel like I'm going to be traumatized listening yeah. to this. Um, that's what we call it vicarious trauma. When, you know, a healthcare provider or somebody has to hear people's, you know, awful stories, sometimes we can start to feel like, wow, the world sucks, you become cynical, and you feel like everybody out there is a rapist, and it really does start to affect you. So 
if you know that about yourself, that you're not going to be able to handle that kind of stuff, um, probably not the best for you. So it's definitely not for everybody. It is definitely not for everybody. So um, there are nurses, at least my coworkers are very happy to have us because they know that they would never Mm want to have to do this job. Yeah. So they're happy and supportive of us um, because these exams take like four to five hours on average. Yeah. That's what I mean. Back to the, it's invasive. It's very long. And so... I never think that anybody just comes in, makes stuff up, and wants to have this done. Because right. I call yeah. it, like, it's like a stress test um, to see if you can sit through all that. So, yeah, it is definitely a nationwide problem, um, especially rural areas. Sometimes they don't have a sane nurse at all. Yeah. So we're sometimes they're transferring people up to Indy, and Indy may be four hours away. I mean, do you really want to travel four hours away to have an exam done and drive back? And if transportation's an issue for you, it just becomes a mess. Yeah. So what do you think needs to be changed so that more people have access to this, to having like access to a sane nurse? Do you think that like that has to happen at the upper level or is that also kind of changing people's like mindsets that they need to create these types of programs? Yeah, I think legislation has done a great job. I think people don't know this either, that these exams are paid for by the state. So people that are concerned about these medical bills or, you know, is my insurance going to cover this? They don't really need to worry about that in Indiana. Um, It is paid for by the state, by the Indiana Criminal Justice Institute. So I think that, you know, there's been a lot of, like, um, violence against women acts that have come out Mm -hmm. um, to help support that kind of stuff. And so I think think we're getting there. It's been slow, but I think it's getting out. Um, And like I said, again, this education and just... Deaconess, at least, we've tried to promote it by, we added it to our website of these mm-hmm. are the steps. If, the, if you're encountering this, this is what you can do, and this is yeah. how you proceed. Uh, and so just, you know, talking. I talked to USI senior nursing students, letting them know. Yeah. It's like the more yeah. people we can touch and talk to about this, um, I mean, you just never know that this stuff existed until you heard it. So, yeah. yeah I didn't know that this, that being a sane nurse was mm-hmm. a thing until we started doing the podcast and we heard about yeah. it from Emily Hall. Yeah, so it's great. This is another reason why this is great is because some, like you said, a lot of people don't even know that this exists or is an option for them. Um, and even if you don't know that that's an option wherever you live, um, just make sure you're going to the hospitals. They can help facilitate any type of treatment or, you know, coordinate you going to, to another hospital that does offer it. How do you think that Indiana stacks up against other states in that um, method of, like, letting people know that it's an option and having it as an option in the first place. I think Indiana does okay. Um, I I used to think they were a little behind the times. Kentucky actually does a really good job too. Um, But Indiana just recently adapted, I think a few years ago, we started doing kit tracking. Um, Because there's always this question of like, as a victim, where did my kit go? Where is it at in the process? Mm -hmm. So now when we collect a kit from somebody, there's actually a, a serial number on the kit. And so I log into the computer, I will put that serial number, and then it regurgitates a PIN number. And then I give that PIN number to the victim, and then they can at any point in time put that information into the system, and it'll say exactly where their kit's at. So I think that was a huge step for Indiana, yeah. is starting mm-hmm. to do that. I know other states have adopted that or have been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like it was time. Yeah, <laughs> And it just helps to keep track of how many kits are out there. Um, I don't know if you've ever read about the Detroit, Michigan stuff where they yes. found like... 40,000 kids, you know, untested. Yeah, really. So this is another nice way that we can kind of keep track of that. How many kids in Indiana do we have? I know from talking to EPD that there are thousands. Oh, my gosh. Thousands, yeah. 
So yeah. happens a lot. So you mentioned how a lot of times you'll see cases where it's a parent or someone really close to the child who is the perpetrator. How do you deal with parental consent whenever it's a child who is being molested by their parent? Yeah, so hopefully they have gone to a trusted adult um, and have given that information. And hopefully that trusted adult has gone forward and come with them to the hospital. So we certainly don't want the offender being the one at the hospital um, because they're going to deny it anyway. So hopefully the non-offending parent could bring them in or... Mm -hmm. If the trusted adult has done what they're supposed to do and reach out to law enforcement and DCS, um, DCS is the um, Department of Child Services. It used to be called CPS, if you guys have heard of that. Mm -hmm. So they may step in at that point and become the guardian temporarily. Um, so we've had them show up to the hospital with them, uh, and then they will give consent for the exam to be done. So Okay. And then do you, I'll just explain it. So like in court, <laughs> <it somewhere. laughs> if, if it does go to court, um, Indiana is very defendant slash perpetrator friendly. And so every defendant has the right to face their accuser. So you could have a child victim up on the stand and they have to look out and talk to a bunch of adults about what happened to their PP um, in front of daddy, maybe who's sitting across from them that might've been the perpetrator. So you can imagine how scary that would be to yeah. a child. It's scary for me as an adult to go to to go to court, yeah. um, and it has nothing to do with me. I'm just explaining about someone mm -hmm. else's worst day. Right. I can't imagine as an adult going in talking about very intimate details, very embarrassing details, um, and let alone a child. We yes. ask them to do so much, um, and it's just not even developmentally appropriate kids' time frames, you know, everything's yesterday, whether it, we're yeah. talking about Christmas, mm -hmm. um, it was yesterday, and it could be June, so, you know, kids, their time frame's off, and that's just developmentally appropriate, and adults don't understand that, they think they're liars, um, because they don't remember things exactly in the way that it happened, so we see that a lot, where kids start to remember things at different times, where they say, oh, no, I meant this time, or this happened last week, I said yesterday, but I meant last week, and so adults always interpret that as lying, um, yeah. but when in reality, it's just they remember things differently than us. And we shouldn't expect them to be able to remember things as an adult would. So, What measures do you think have to be put in place so that kids don't have to experience the full extent of that trauma? Like, uh, you mean as far as testifying? Mm -hmm. that? Yeah, and um, maybe even just, like, afterwards. Like, do you think, like, every child who goes through rape has to be in therapy afterwards. How do you deal with a kid who's gone through that I, type of experience? I think so. I think that they need to, you know, they'll get their forensic interview, but that's usually just fact-finding. That's not yeah. therapeutic. They do need to talk to somebody, um, eventually at least, to about what happened to them. I think that's so, so important because any victim you talk to, they always say, you know, the mental part is the worst part. Physically, mm -hmm. yeah, it was horrible, but what's going on mentally now is way, way worse. Um, and I don't know if you guys know this, Holly's House does a program called uh, Think First, Stay Safe. And mm -hmm. so they visit all the elementary schools. Oh, um, I went through that program. Yeah, so you remember that? So I think that is so important too, just letting yeah. kids know. Because if you've grown up in a household where daddy always touches you, you probably think that's normal. You yeah. don't even know that that's not. And so... Once you hear it at that program, it's kind of like, oh, wait, other people's homes aren't like this? Mm -hmm. And so that gets kids talking. And so they do get a lot of um, disclosures from those once they do go talk to the schools. So I think that's so important, too, just letting yeah. kids know that 
it's not okay for people to touch your body this way. And just talking to them early on, you know, there's so many great teaching points at different moments. You know, if you've got mm-hmm. siblings, nieces or nephews, and you're helping them with a bath, that's the time to talk about like, hey, nobody touches you here. Um, this is your private area. Nobody touches you where your bathing suit is. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no secrets. Because perpetrators will a lot of times say, this is a secret between you and I. Um, and so letting them know that there aren't secrets. So you can always come to any trusted adult. Uh, things like that, just letting kids know ahead of time before it happens to them. So if, God forbid, it ever does happen to them, they remember and say, oh, that's right, I'm supposed to go to somebody I trust and let them know Mm -hmm. exactly what happened to me. And so Indiana being defendant-friendly, this is different than other states? Yeah, some states have different laws. They're a little more friendly, at least on the fact of they'll let um, the the victim, excuse me, video in versus actually being present in the courtroom because the courtroom's super scary you have a bunch of people staring at you it's almost like a spotlight's on you and so it's sometimes they're more comfortable just doing a video recording and also some states will allow that forensic interview that happens in a nice safe space Mm -hmm. they will allow that to be the testimony Um, indiana does not allow that Hmm. so indiana's a little behind the times on that stuff i agree yeah So is there anything else you would like to add? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I appreciate you guys being interested in this and wanting to learn more. Anybody that wants to learn more about it, I'm happy to explain. Yeah. Um, This is a truly heinous crime, and I think um, it's not always taken as seriously as other things. Yeah. When it should be. Um, And I don't think justice is served for the most part, unfortunately. Um, and I, I could totally tell from a victim's standpoint of why they would never want to come forward. And, and also, just don't ever feel like you're alone. Um, even if the medical piece is not something that you want, there's always advocates. If you just need somebody to talk to, yeah. um, or if you, you know, just want the medical part and you don't want to talk to law enforcement, that part is always available to you, too. So just know that you always have options. We're never going to force you to do anything. Um, and as long as you're 18, we'll let you decide if you want to report or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I completely agree. And I really enjoyed hearing you talk about how we have to change the stigma so that people do not feel like they're alone anymore. And I think that's a great point to bring up from not only our social perspective, but also from a medical perspective as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for yeah. speaking with us today. We really enjoyed having you on this podcast. We learned a lot. Yeah, I didn't know a lot about this. This was so great. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. If you're experiencing rape, sexual assault, or domestic violence, Albion Fellows Bacon Center is located near Southwest Indiana, and they provide resources and help for anyone. And you are not alone if you are experiencing that. And they have a 24/7 hotline. Their number is. 812-422-5622. And additionally, the the National Domestic Abuse Hotline is 800-799-SAFE. And you can also call RAIN, the Rape and and Incest National Network, and they have a hotline that is open 24-7, 365 days a year. And that hotline is at 800-656-HOPE. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for more Ingredients of Change.